0: Now here we are in 2023, and Asia's position at the top table of the global economy is pretty much assured. It's not come without some tensions, of course, but um, underneath all that has been another phenomenon, which has been the rise of the Indian CEO. Now It's become quite clear that shareholders of some of the world's biggest companies, whether it's Fortune 500 or other global conglomerates, have trusted Indian CEOs to become stewards and custodians of some of these huge global businesses. Now this is a topic I'll get into with my next guest, a gentleman named Sanjay Sama, the MIT professor who has now become and who's been tasked to head the Asia School of Business in KL, whose mandate it is, is to help prepare tomorrow's leaders today. As always, if you can, do subscribe to the channel, Uh, like the videos if you watch them, Uh, it would help a great deal if you could. And so, dear viewers, may I now present Sanjay Sama. Manjee Sama, thank you for doing this. Quite Such a, privilege. a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, we've been trying to get this together for some time. Finally, we have you in front of these two friends. Um, let's start where, you know, um, your origins in, in India, right? Um, you've come from the India Institute of Technology. Then you went on to, I think, um, Carnegie Mellon, where you did your master's, and then on to Berkeley, where you did your uh, PhD. And then now you're at MIT. Um Talk, talk to us about that path, that journey, right? It's, it's a path, it's a journey which is quite well-trodden by, by folk from your, from your country. Describe that journey for me. Yeah, you know, when I was a kid, uh, I remember my mother
1: pulling me aside and saying, listen, son, you know, sort of, it's IOT or bust. You know, we're, yeah. we're a poor country and uh, we're not wealthy, we're educated. So I studied for IOT, a bunch of us studied. I got, a few of us got in. And then uh, I was a bit of a wild kid in IOT, actually. And uh, um, I made it out, um, and from there I went, uh, wanted to do something completely different. So I went to work in the oil industry, worked for Schlumberger in uh, Scotland, and then from there I actually hurt my knee while I was there. Decided to take a sabbatical. How? How? Well, you know, I heard it playing soccer, and then I heard it again playing uh, on the rig, and then I heard I finally blew it out playing tennis a few years later. But I have screws in there, and I knew I was sort of wobbly. On the rig, you don't want to be wobbly on an no, icy rig, you don't, don't. So I went to Carnegie Mellon, CMU. Then my wife went to UC Berkeley, so I joined her there. Uh, got a, got my PhD, um,
0: and then came to MIT. If I can get into your head a little bit, Sanjay, because um, you seem to be the not atypical Indian native in the sense that you're quite the super achiever, of course. Um, in terms of all the work you've done, the books you've written, the, the papers you've written, uh, some of the startups you've, you you founded and sold. So we'll talk about that later but um you are the progeny of um, well quite a i guess illustri- illustrious family in india i think your father was quite high up in the government and your wife's uh, family also also within the government as well what was their mode of uh, parental management were they quite hands on and micro or did they were they quite laissez faire in terms of how, how they you know put inputs into you
1: very laissez faire yeah very laissez faire but always very intellectual yeah it was always about math and physics and All our conversations, but very laissez-faire.
0: So discussions at the dinner table would comprise what kind of stuff?
1: Um, Politics and uh, history and um, physics. And, I mean, to this day, my octogenarian father sends me, you know, physics articles. And um, it was very intellectual. Um, Government and international policy and economics, you know, um, and sports, <laughs>
0: cricket. So how does, how does that fall upon a 12-year-old's ears? Because I try and talk about those kind of things to my, my kids and they're like, you know, <laughs> they switch off, right? We didn't have much TV then, you yeah, know, in yeah. India. We didn't have yeah.
1: TikTok. Uh, yeah. Black and white TV was about it when I was a young child. Uh, cricket only entered, uh, I mean, uh, Color TV only entered with uh, the Indian uh, the the uh, Cricket World Cup, which India won in eighty three, and suddenly Color TV took off. That's right. Um, but um, so you know, we didn't have that much, it was all about meeting and talking, and uh, family dinners were all about that. I'm known, I'm also an only kid, um, and so it, we were a small family, and and I had a huge number of friends, and we grew up in a homogenous neighborhood where all the parents were that sort of you know, ilk, yeah, I'm in touch with many of them, yeah, a few of them are CEOs of big companies, three right. of us now, um, and um.
0: So it was a very interesting culture, you know. Yeah. So I want to raise that that point because um, it it seems to me that the last 10, 20 years has been has seen the real emergence of the, you know, the consummate Indian tech CEO. Right. You've got people like Sundar Pichal. You've got people like uh, Indra Nui Nui, Nui before a little bit before that with PepsiCo, uh, Aj Banga, Mastercard, and of course um, you've got you've also got Satya Nadella at Microsoft. I think one or two of them could even be your peers, right? Yeah. yeah. What What do you think that explains that uh, phenomenon? You
1: know, I've struggled. I mean, I think certainly English helps. Yeah, English is a huge advantage that Indians have. Um, tech skills, math skills, which were not in vogue in the 80s, right? I mean, if you took a, a math degree, it was something you did because you can get something else. Suddenly became good, right? Engineering skills became good, uh, became important. So they had the tech skills. But I think also it's sort of the multicultural aspect of it. You know, you live in India, but in India it's very diverse. Then you go to the US, you've got to discover how to make make a go of it. You've got to figure out how to assert yourself. Indians are quite assertive. That's one
0: advantage they have. Yeah, yeah. So let, let's talk about that because I've, um, well, um, you know, MIT some of your alumni, uh, uh, your peers as well, I want to talk about this this report um, that, that came from Jackson Liu, Richard Nesbitt, and Michael Morris. The title of their particular research was why, why East Asians but not South Asians are so vastly uh, represented at, at the corp- higher echelons of the corporate world in, in the US. And that seems to be quite a phenomenon, right? So, so the cornerstone of Jackson Lou's research was that um, they, the, 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 the South Indians have a certain element of assertiveness, which is that vocalness, the ability to speak up and to stand out and be heard, whereas the East Asians are more by culture, more in, in a way introverted, right? Do you find that to be a truism? Um, well, I mean, I can't argue with the statistics,
1: and Jackson's work is very good. I do know that individually I have I have very close friends who are East Asian, and I find them assertive and fun and brilliant and so on. I do think statistically... Um, Uh, Of course, there're like Nvidia. Of course, you know you have uh, Jensen Huang and all these guys, uh, right? AMD, you know, amazing
0: uh, uh, leaders of uh, or Broadcom, right? A Malaysian, but the Broadcom uh, guy is more like a founder, right? He wasn't hired per se. German, right. Yeah.
1: Um, So I think what it is—that's a good point. I think what it is is uh, because India is so diverse, and so I mean, maybe part of the reason that India's um, uh, you know has its struggles is it's a very rumbunctious argumentative society so the result of that is that the people who come out come out with a you know with an element of uh, willing to be assertive but also combine that with a willing willingness to sort of understand the situation read the situation you know play the room uh, understand the audience read, read the crowd the audience, right? yeah. yeah so maybe that's what it is um, and then in the end uh, you know you need to be a techie to be a tech CEO so Arvind the uh, you know Krishna right. who is a who's the CEO of uh, IBM, for example, right? I mean, he rose through the ranks, and next thing you know, after their struggles, he becomes CEO. So uh, maybe that's what it is, a combination of language, tech, multicultural, um, making it as an immigrant, and assertiveness.
0: Yeah, and of course, the new YouTube uh, head honcho is, I can't remember his name, but he replaced Susan Mujici, right? Yeah, Um, yeah. So is is there something to be uh, um, kind of communicated to the you know the future leaders of of the corporate world in the sense that you know it's 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 one thing to be a good sportsman it's another thing to be you know a good ac- academic um, but it's quite another to to be you know to learn to be to to speak out to stand out right and th- th- I think that was something that Cheryl Sandberg wrote about when when she wrote the book Lean In, right but that was in the context of female leadership but it's it's more broad ranging than that because. You need to stand up. You need to speak up. And in the world where there's a lot of noise, that's all the more important. Do you teach that at MIT? I mean, is that kind of thing discussed?
1: Uh, mm. Yes, it is, actually. So, um, you know, it's sort of interesting. I mean, if you take the British Empire, the British Empire was created by uh, glorious amateurs. I mean, leaving aside the ills of the colonial world, right? I mean, these people would just go into a new world and learn to sort of learn the language. And then... Uh, assert themselves, right? The Rhodes Scholarship, you know, it's based on that. It's the glorious, you know, you're well-rounded. Sports was important because you learn to to play in a team, but yet you had to assert your skills, right? So um, I do believe that assertiveness is important, but there's a difference between assertiveness and measured assertiveness. Measured assertiveness is when you have the power to assert, but you assert it in a way that's constructive. You assert it at the right time. You read the room, right? Um, and that is a learned skill, and it's also contagious. And if you're surrounded by people who do that, you tend to do more of that. And I absolutely believe, I think it's essential, because when you're trying to do something new, when you're trying to innovate, if you just uh, want to, you know, sort of go with the flow, it's hard to lead the team, right? There's a difference between managing and leading. Managers manage your budget, you know, manage your plan. Leaders say, you know, we
0: need to go in that direction, right? And that takes assertiveness. So here's the thing, Sanjay, because in your read of the corporate world and how it's evolving, right, um, we might about to come from a time, say, in the 80s when you had your Gordon gecko types, right, hard-charging alpha males, you know, win at all costs. And then you, you've now got the more urbane, more, more erudites, more well-spoken, eloquent people like, like you know, AJ Banga, for example. But then things seem to be evolving quite quickly. Now it's kind of like a, the corporate world and the business world seems to be quite much more touchy-feely, much more empathetic, you know, ESG and social covenants and all that kind of stuff, right? And then I guess perhaps a good manifestation of that could be your uh, Shu Chu. I can't remember. I don't know whether it's the right pronunciation. But he's the guy that heads TikTok that faced Congress and all the all these lawmakers in, in America, and he got vociferous. Um, he was he had four hours of, of deep grilling. I mean barbecue style. And he was you know he was not your hard charging CEO. He was quite you know self effacing, quite gentle, quite empathetic, but then quite forceful as well. So, do you see? Do you see that the corporate world, the leadership mold, is changing? Do you think? I think so.
1: I mean, you yeah. still have the Elon Musk's of the world, right? The bull, the uh, highly assertive, in-your-face. But I think that the vast majority. Are of the latter type. You got to walk and chew chew gum at the same time. You got to assert when you need to assert. You need to lead a team. You need to show empathy. I mean, we just went through hell with COVID, right? That's right. You got to pivot the company. You got to win people over, and that is a combination of skills. And you got to know which went to uh, to use with skill, how to sort of uh, modulate them. And I think that is the future. I thought he did a fantastic job in front of Congress, by the way. Uh, and you know, if you see like Nadella, or you know, or all these people when they when they're in front of uh, audiences, they're really able to both be authentic, but also adaptable. It's not manipulative. It's actually authentic. When you start getting manipulative, you sort of screw up at some point. Exactly.
0: Right? But these are authentic. Well, Zuckerberg didn't seem authentic when he faced Congress, right? But you know Nadella, right? I mean, you've known him since way back when, right? Yeah, um, yeah. So, so we went so, to school together, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so, um, was he, has he always been like that? Did he become like that? Was he nurtured that way? Or, I mean, what's your... I mean, in the context of being instructive to future leaders, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I mean, I knew him as a kid. You know, yeah. we were all sort of kids, um, and I'm you know stayed in touch over the years. But I think you become that, you know, you become that. You, you, you know, we, we're big AI systems. Yeah. We talk about AI now. Yeah. You know, I mean, why did AI systems are looking for things to learn from? That's why, by the way, Twitter is trying to you know ramp down throttle right because yeah. AI systems are scraping all those chats. Yeah. We have to be like that. We have to look at every chat and learn every discussion and learn and adapt. what could I have done differently? I think reflection, reflection that is the thing that is essential in these great leaders. They reflect you know and then they um, and then and just just yeah you know actually I realized the other day I do it myself uh, you know every weekend I look at my calendar for the previous week not the next week and I reflect on the meetings. And uh, partly to see which meetings I could have avoided. right? <laughs> but then I sort of, it's led to this thing where I think back at the meetings and think, what did I get out of that? Was that good? What could I have done differently? Uh, and I realized that uh, without uh, being conscious of it, reflection is essential. You, we have to be AI systems. We have to be better than AI systems to beat the AI systems. Is that possible? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Can an AI system negotiate a contract? Can it think of ESG? Can it think, can it resolve a conflict? Can it... Uh, you know design a new strategy which is not uh, cookie cutter AI systems cookie cutter right Hopefully, we're better than cookie cutters. Absolutely, it's possible.
0: Well, as we know it today, maybe not, but in, say, five years' time, and they're evolving at warp speed, Sanjay.
1: Yeah, but they're all stochastic parrots. Emily Blender, as a professor of the University of Washington, said it's a parrot, but it's a stochastic parrot. It means mm-hmm. it's got a lot of history and memory
0: and statistics, right? Well, AGI is the one we've got to watch out for, right? Artificial general intelligence. That's yeah. the one that, you know, kind of like uh, mimics the human, you know, system, right? Yeah, but look, I mean,
1: it's like this. I mean, the, I look at AI and I go, look, we're all shocked with ChatGPT, right? November 2022. You won't remember the first time you logged That's into right. ChatGPT and you typed something and it spoke back to you and you went, oh, my God, right? But really, what is ChatGPT? A ChatGPT is a large language model. And a large language model is essentially a predictive typer that just goes on and on, right? You know, and you, when you type in your iPhone, you go, I will meet you at, and it tries to complete yeah, the yeah. restaurant, except it goes on. And then we will order sushi, and you know. That's what it is. So why is it startling us? Because we looked in a mirror and we found language staring back at us. A lot of what we are is language. Our thinking is language. Our planning is language. A lot of our knowledge is ingrained in language. And so Chad GPD stared back at us and we thought, oh, my God, that's a lot of what we do. But it's not all what we do. And that missing element, we don't give it enough value. It is enormous. Take, take self-driving cars. By today, we thought we'd all be driving self-driving cars. Not even close, right? The easy stuff's been done. The hard part is all the other things human beings do. And we have to really examine ourselves to discover and appreciate that.
0: So before we talk about your work with the Indian government, which I think you still do yeah, to some yeah. degree, right? Um Let's talk about how you look back on your week and try and genuflect and try and be constructive about the, your meetings and interactions, right? That, that is something which I find quite interesting because it's, it's about being constructive about oneself and being present and all these kind of things, right? What kind of things do you watch out for and, and how do you construct? How do you take a constructive approach You know, to, to constantly hone your interactions?
1: So my wife caught me doing this and she sort of pointed out I do this, so I'll tell you what. And then I had to sort of reflect on it at a meta level. So I, I look at the meeting and I go, do I have a good feeling about that meeting? Was that constructive? So in
0: something that's coming up or something that... Always like... in the past. I look okay. at the
1: future as well, right? Okay, I, I have to look at the rest of the week to figure out which meetings I can get out of, right? But I look back on my calendar, which is pretty packed, and I go, hmm, that meeting, you know, I don't feel really... I don't think I achieved a lot. Maybe I could have done it this way, you know? Um, I, I thought maybe I was maybe a little rude. Maybe I shouldn't have been. I'm really rude. But, you know, even though I have a feeling... Uh, or I say, maybe I wasn't assertive enough. You know, I do that. But my wife caught me doing it. And I said, did you realize you do that? And I thought, oh, I guess I do. She's right. <laughs> how did she notice you doing it? As in you were like consciously because, looking through your... Yeah, yeah. I was looking at the calendar. I was muttering to myself. And she goes, what are you doing? And I went, oh. but then I had to surface what I was doing. And yeah. So
0: Brian Armstrong of Coinbase does this mm-hmm. to some degree as well, especially when he does the hiring, right? So that's yeah. not good. But in terms of you, so how do you kind of demarcate, say, for example, a social meeting? Mm-hmm. What kind of things do you want to get out of it? If it's a work meeting and it's just you know a bunch of people, what's the objective? So and so on and so forth.
1: Yeah, I mean social meetings i I really want to be myself and have a good time. That's really my objective. I do not want to be
0: not myself. If I'm not myself, it I probably shouldn't have done it. but can you really though? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, I think so. Because you know, I mean, to some degree, people play roles, right? I don't. I've no. i yeah. I stopped doing that a long time ago. I had to do it. Yeah,
1: you know, to, but the, that it's semi-social. It's not social. You're yeah. there angling, you know. <laughs> but now, you know, socially, if I'm with someone, I want to be myself, and I want them to be themselves, and I want it to be just fun, right? Yeah. And if it's a cognitive load beyond that, it's not worth my time, right? Um, work meetings, I, again, want to be authentic. I don't want to lie, right? I want the other person to feel like they're being authentic. And I want to get stuff done, right? We, did we make progress. It could be a disagreement. It could be like, let's meet to figure this out. You're one place. I'm one place. Can we have a respectful outcome where we disagree, right? But also understand what we disagree on, and then we can chew on it, right? And if I'm the boss and I have to make a decision, look, here's my decision. I'm sorry. This I'm just, this is my decision. I know it doesn't make you happy, but this is what we're going to have to do. So I just want... Um, authenticity i guess if i had to put it in one word it's
0: authenticity yeah i think within the first five minutes of meeting you at the last time uh, you said wiswig to me and then i said what wiswig what you see is what you get right <laughs> so in your work with the indian government right um and we know that within the next 30 years india could well overtake if not already at some degree because it's it's so vague right population sizes uh, overtake china as the world's most populous nation They haven't... Well, they made a... Well, some would say they made a meal of it so far, right? In terms of the economy, right? Um, How do you think they should do it going forward? So India's
1: already only crossed China, by the way. Yeah. It's just crossed China. Yeah. Um, According to... The... Just population. Yeah. Total numbers. And, well, according to some United Nations numbers that I saw. um, I think the thing about India is it's going to go the Indian way. The Indian way is to disagree. It's to... Not, it's, it's, you know, it's democratic, I mean that's the good news, uh, mostly, uh, but uh, it's argumentative, it's fractious, um, but it, maybe in its own way, it's authentic, you know? I mean, the stuff that happens is authentic. Um, and so it is hard to line up things, you know? There's no magnetic field to line up the iron filings. These filings will point in any direction. That's a disadvantage. The advantage, though, is it's extremely entrepreneurial, right? Um, And so there's a lot of bottom-up activity. I mean, if you go to a grocery store in India or if you go to a little corner store, they're extremely creative in the way they source, sometimes too creative. Some laws may be broken, right? That's a problem. Uh, The way they procure, the way they sell, the deals they strike, the personal service, it's quite extraordinary, actually. And so I think what will end up happening in India is we tend to judge every country like Malaysia, India, China, Indonesia, you know, Kenya. We have a a lens, a lens that we've learned from the success of basically Western countries over the last 100 years. We think cities should look like this. We think commerce should look like this, right? But it doesn't. There's a lot of smallholder farming in India. most retail India is tiny little single proprietor stores. In America, it's Walmart and Amazon, right? So, when you look at it through that lens, it doesn't work. But in its own way, it's actually empowering and it works. Because this uh, the individual has a lot of say, right? The little corner store may, may not compete at the McDonald's because there is no McDonald. I mean, there is a McDonald's, but it doesn't take off. So that's the advantage of
0: India, and that's also the disadvantage. So then how, I mean, in your work with India and consulting them and advising them, right, how do you think they should take their place at the top table with China and Russia and the, in the US, and there's this power struggle going on, and you know, um, it hasn't really asserted itself on the global stage, even though we might say as a people they do assert themselves. Yeah. Um, China's made a great, you know, great song and dance about its common prosperity and this and that and, and what have you. So they are seen to be the the big foe to America. But India is just as big, if not bigger in the future, right? Yeah, but I, again, I think that's a lens. I mean, why should it assert itself?
1: I think it will. I mean, it's soft power, you know, it's Bollywood, it's these CEOs. Uh, it's, I mean, for example, so I'll give you an example. So uh, about uh, five, 12 years ago, um, the uh, uh, Nandan Neelkeny, one of the founders of Infosys, uh, created um, a- an agency in India to come up with a new ID for Indian citizens. I actually was uh, one of the authors of the document that became what is called the universal ID system, now called ADHAR. Yeah, you're, and you work with
0: RFIDs and stuff. Yeah, it
1: came yeah. out. It, I, th- this is just a number, but yeah. I used uh, some... Uh, Skills I had in designing numbers for RFID and of course RFID is also RF and ID and sensors and all that, but I just used the numbering uh, skills. It turns out to be quite difficult. So India came out with, and I was involved in, as I said, in that with a numbering scheme and a biometric identification, no card, okay, just a number and a a biometric fingerprint, fingerprint. fingerprints, index finger, yeah, yeah, and that's transformed commerce in India. So if you just go search right on India. Digital commerce is transformed by the fact that every Indian citizen has an Aadhaar, which is a number and a biometric, and now that's attached to a whole bunch of other things. It's helping with commerce. It's helping with, uh, you know, with uh, e-commerce. Now there's a new e-commerce framework, and the number of transactions that are happening per second is is mind-boggling, right? So that uh, layer has enabled that f- chaotic India, in its own chaotic way, to achieve a very different chaotic type of success. I think we're very limited in some respects all over the world. We're given a lens to look at something through. And we look at it and go well, but in that lens you're not doing well because that's what we expect you to do, right? But if the world actually all operated in a way that was compliant with that lens, we could not sustain the growth we have. Okay? So if you look at highways, well if everyone bought a car, the world would collapse. I mean the amount of CO2 would produce the price of oil, et cetera. So I just question that I think we fall into the trap in my view of judging the world through lenses that we handed rather than the lenses we should create. Which may seem a little philosophical, and maybe I dodged your question
0: entirely. No, that's okay, because um, the people make the country, right? And the country yeah. is that, that which takes its place in the in the in the structure of the hierarchy of things according to where they should be, right? Um. So, so when you talk about people looking through life in a th- different way, right? These are the these, these are the the weird the weird guys, you know, the alternative thinkers, you know, the Steve Jobs and you know yeah, in the, yeah, da, da, da. Um, the square pegs on the round hole, exactly, right? And these are the guys that change the way things appear uh, I mean Elon, Elon Musk has talked about solving the world's traffic problems by going underground and underground you've got infinite landmass you can just dig tunnels through and that's quite revolutionary we, you know no one has thought of that thought of that until now um, but how do you, how do you inculcate um cu- curiosity um you know yeah you uh, know yeah curiosity
1: is an amazing thing i mean my god that's to me the thing that humanity needs so I mean, curiosity if i can uh, sort of take a step back Curiosity is to the human brain what hunger is to the human ma- ma- mouth, the human digestive system. When we get hungry, we generate saliva, right? When you get curious, the brain generates dopamine. Curiosity, novelty, they generate dopamine. They're a survival thing. I mean, if you get curious, uh, you look for things. For example, you might, let's say you were a hunter-gatherer. Maybe you tried to eat that other thing. Maybe it was dangerous, you got sick, but you learned that. So cu- curiosity... Is what takes humanity forward, and it's a very fundamental asset in uh, human emotions. Very fundamental, and it is cu- it is in fact infectious. You asked me about my parents, right? The gift they gave me was curiosity,
0: but it's not for everybody. You I don't see that is. in most people. In any given organization, if it's a people a company of hundred people, I'd wager that the majority of them would be just um, you know cookie cutter people, and a small minority of them would be kind of like um, you know the entrepreneurial you know, innovative, curious guys. Most of them will go home and watch, um, you know, um, the Kardashians. And some of them, some of them might go home and and learn new skills, whether it's video editing or whether it's, I don't know, whatever, coding or whatever, right? Um, We we talked about this in, in, you know, the, the, the organization of the future. They need alternative thinkers because alternative thinkers think of faster, better, cheaper ways of doing things rather within the organization rather than outside on their own steam. And it's it's an ongoing thing, but how how do you because as someone who heads you know an organization which trains you know executive leaders for the for the future, can that be nurtured? Can that be nurtured? Absolutely, absolutely. So when I talk to people, even
1: uh, the uh, receptionist at a really cutting edge company, I can see the difference. I mean, and literally, if I had to capture it in a word, it would be curiosity. You know, they'll be like, hey, you know, good to meet you. I mean, for example, there's a Google office next to MIT. You know, the way they operate, the way they talk to you. Maybe the it's post- a hiring policy thing. It's though, the so hiring, I mean. and it's infectious and it's hiring policy. It's both. Uh, I've seen uh, I've seen in in organizations I've been involved in, people go, wow, you know, well, that's interesting. Can I do that? And you go, yes. And they become involved, you know. I have a 80-year-old 80, 80 lady who uh, works at MIT. She cleans the um we have this lady she cleans uh, all the offices at 6 p.m she's 80 doesn't have to work she does it because she gets bored she's from the caribbean and she's a great friend of mine and she's quite amazing actually and she'll ask me all these questions you know just sort of they they surprise me she just wants to know she just wants to know yeah you know she'll ask me questions about uh you know she said the other day, you know, I'm here now, and so I go to MIT very infrequently. She said, oh, Sanjay, I haven't seen you in some time. Where are you? I'm Kuala Lumpur. What are you doing there? You know, Asia School of Business. Oh, really? But you're an engineering professor. And she's the lady in, you know, in the cleaning staff. Why are you doing business? You know? And so it's sort of very interesting. Uh, curiosity, I don't think, should be hermetically sealed in the CEO suite. I have seen it literally spread across an organization. By the way, the receptionists, the driver's, they
0: connect across organizations better sometimes than the rest of us. But if you're trying to um, teach curiosity, how do you do it? You awaken it. You awaken it. You don't teach it. So you think it's latent? It's absolutely latent. I mean, think
1: about it. Every human child goes from zero to language. That is an incredible. All children, Sanjay. Most, you know, yeah, unfortunately. But speaking, right, or walking, uh, you know, uh, is. Quite a feat. It is a greater feat to go from nothing to language than it is for Einstein to go from, you know, Newtonian physics to relativity, right? So if that is true, then, all, I mean, in fact, I think we spend our, edu- our time in education shutting curiosity down. We have expressions in English language, right? Curiosity killed the cat.
0: Yeah, why? Nonsense. Though? It shouldn't be, though. It shouldn't be, yeah. yeah.
1: Or all good things come to wait. Nonsense. Yeah.
0: Don't wait. Yeah. Carpe right? Yeah. Um, so the thing about uh, Asia, Southeast Asia in particular, I, th- I think the vast majority of economies in, in, in this region are family-owned businesses, right? You know, your, your atypical patriarch that runs the business and he's first generation, passes on to his children. And the way the culture is in those organizations, we see them time and time again. It's very, very domineering, very, very um, dictatorial. People who are hired within those organizations are basically people who say yes and never no the existential threat to these businesses at a time when we've got huge uh, evolutionary change. I mean, some of these companies, I, I don't want to name some of them, but we, they, these are household names. They might be gone in 50 years' time because they just haven't moved quickly enough. Yeah, look, I tell you what's happening right now.
1: You may have a successful dry-cleaning business and you feel pretty good about it and you hire employees and uh, you pay them you know just enough to get them to work and you think you're doing great. But there's someone in Lithuania Absolutely. saying, how do I completely revolutionize the dry cleaning business? In Lithuania, Yeah, right? Mm. I actually happen to know a company in Estonia that did that in some respects. Because he spent some time there on his sabbatical. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, he actually moved to Boston um, okay. after he started his company in Estonia. and And then he's going to figure out how to scale it and come after the business here. Right. Very good. He should. He must. He should. So you're right. This patriarchal approach worked up to a point. But now you've got to tap the powers of creativity and curiosity and question the status quo. Otherwise, someone else will for you.
0: So do you think that these family-owned businesses in in Malaysia and Singapore and the Philippines and Indonesia and Thailand, you know, we see these are household names, right? Do you think they'll listen? Do you think they they will try, you know, the second and third generation would would hire people that would question them, which is completely against the grain of these family businesses?
1: I don't know them well enough. I can tell you in India, a lot of family-owned businesses, the second and third generation, um, often, they modernize and they go big. And they must, right? And they must. Uh, And once you say, I want to go big, Mm. you're forced to go through this reflection. And a lot of them are well-educated in the sense that you have the mental space to think, uh, you know, unconventional thoughts or to think philosophically. And, you know, philosophy is a way to generalize, right? You generalize, you go, why can't I do that? Why can't I do that? Why can't I go online? And these are some of the things that I see some of the smaller family businesses who've become larger organically do in the third generation and then go really big. I've seen this happen a few times. I don't know enough about Malaysia to judge it, but
0: I do think it has to happen. Well, one thing Malaysia wants to do, and this is something which is often trotted out by the policymakers and the government, is that, uh, oh, Malaysia wants to be IOT and this and that. My sense is that they don't really know what they're doing. <laughs> but, but 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 let's talk about in, the, in the context of your book. You, you wrote one, I think, some years ago with uh, Kenneth Traub and uh, Linda Bernardi, right? And you, you, you had a look at it from a kind of 360 point of view. So without talking about Malaysia's IoT, IoT aspirations, what does it take? I mean, what is it all about? What is IoT? IoT
1: is besides the point. That's the point of the book. Yeah. you got to figure out what the hell you're trying to do. Let me give you an example. Yeah. Ford or Proton sells cars in Malaysia, right? Now, the question is, do you really want a car or do you want transportation? Do you really like looking for parking? Do you like paying for gasoline? Do you like getting dinged and chasing the the other party to get your insurance, to get their insurance number? If I live in Boston, do I like skidding in the ice, right? Or getting a parking ticket? Or what I did recently, which is forget to pay my insurance, and you know, irritate my wife? Owning a car is a pain. What I want is transportation. If you want transportation, this is where Grab comes in, or Uber comes in. They go, click your finger and I'll give you transportation. Grab is an IoT company. Why? The driver has a smartphone. The smartphone has a sensor. It's called GPS. It's connected to the internet, right? The passenger has a smartphone, has a sensor called GPS. It's connected to the internet. That's IoT. And in the cloud, matchmaking is done and transportation shows up or food shows up. Yeah. So IoT sort of comes in. Don't yeah.
0: try to do IoT. Try and solve problems. Technology will get you will find its way. And yet Grab already now seems to be so layer one, right? It's it's kinda of like an Uber. It's it's so layer one now. Um, how do you take that whole idea forward into the, you know, as we head into 2023, 2024, into the third decade? You have to be constantly, constantly paranoid. You know, Andy Grove said
1: it. That's Only right. the paranoid uh, survive. That's right. Right? I mean, think about it. In our own lifestyle, in our own li- uh, life cycle, I mean, you and I are not that old, Too but nonetheless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In our own life uh, lives, we've seen film cameras get replaced by the uh, Minoltas of the world. We've seen the Minoltas of the world replaced by smartphones. We've seen two entire phases of industry disrupt each other and disrupt an incumbent right? We saw tapes get disrupted by the uh, podca- the uh, iPods and the, you know, iTunes, and that be disrupted by streaming. So you have about three years of runway. And after that, if you're not trying to disrupt yourself, someone else is trying to disrupt you and you will never catch up.
0: It seems to me that um, one of the biggest disruptive forces uh, we face today is this whole Web3 decentralized finance thing. And yet, what appears to me to be, what well, at least in its past, used to be one of the most innovative countries, the US government. They seem to be pushing back, you know, people like Gary Gensler and the SEC, and they're fighting back against the Web3 guys. They seem to have lost the plot a little bit. and And it seems to me that it's a bit of a wasted opportunity because this is one thing that you can really do to step it up and, and do things a lot better, um, why do you think that happens? Well, so I mean, Web three
1: is a very interesting concept. It's fascinating. I'm mean, you know I spent uh, a few months in Malta trying to figure out NFTs. You know, I love it, right? Yeah. But actually, if you look at the number of killer apps, they're not that down aren't that many. Mm. And proof of work is extremely wasteful. And then you have a consensus problem, right? I mean, there was an issue with too many of these servers being in one country, like China at one point, right? So it's not flawless. It's an unbelievably, incredibly interesting thing. I mean, we still don't know what Satoshi is. It's fascinating. I think what it is, is because a lot of people don't understand it, it becomes a bit of a gold rush. We saw that with FTX, Binance, you know, we're seeing what's happening. So there is a great deal of concern about its viability of the viability of the business models and it's being, uh, it's used as a cover for doing other nonsense, right? Under a veil of formal, right? So I think that's sort of what we're seeing. Uh, you know, Gary Genslow at MIT. Uh, I feel like I need to defend him. Do you, do you know him? I mean, I've met him a few times, yeah. right? But that's not the, but the, my point is that's sort of where it's coming from, I think, right? I don't think it's a knee-jerk opposition to, to Web3. That said... Uh, I do think Web3 has many, many opportunities where I don't see it happening. For example, the ethical supply chains, things like that, right? It's more the sort of fintech world where we're trying to figure out exactly where the killer app is. Another application which I worked on is uh, is um, credentials, you know? So if you have a credential from one country and you can put it on, you know, some sort of blockchain, right? And let's say you're from, uh, from uh, Syria and Assad wants you uh, wants to take away your dentist degree so you can't practice as a dissident in Germany, wouldn't it be great if your credential were on uh, on a blockchain of some sort? So these are applications, I think, that are evolving. But I think what you're seeing is not so much an opposition to Web3, but a caution given some of the uh, the uh, implosions that have
0: occurred. Do you think the step is too far? Do you think the the leap in technology and, and, and cognizance of what's at stake is too far? I mean, when we saw how Barnes & Noble brick and mortar went under to Amazon, you kind of saw you know, the writing of the wall, when you saw how, you know, Virgin Records goes down to um, Spotify, you kind of see the point, right? And it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination. But for this, and basically your US dollar um, coming to naught when when you can actually, you know, trade, I don't know, Bitcoin or Solana, right? And use that as a medium of exchange. And I'd I'd have to push back and say the number of apps out there is incredible where Web3 is concerned. Do you think that's Gary Gensler and his cohort's big, big problem with, with Web3? You know, Gary Gensler
1: taught Web three when he was at MIT, yeah, so, so, so he's, pretty open, right? yeah. he's yeah. pretty open to it. He's pretty open to it. Why do
0: you think they push back then?
1: I think the pushback is because uh, Bitcoin was also used in the Colonial Pipeline hack. You know, because BT, uh, FTX did collapse because there are other there are other things. I think certainly, I see the killer apps. I see the apps. You know, I've used them. Right, As I said I worked in NFTs. I see it. I think there's a sense that if it is not widely accepted and understood. It can also be a source of uh, malfeasance.
0: Yeah, exactly. But, but Spider Man did say, right? With great power comes great, great responsibility. responsibility. Exactly. And wouldn't really you rather harness it rather than you know you know keep it a, at well, a distance?
1: Well, the, funnily enough, uh, in fact, the Boston Fed was working with MIT. Uh, I think that's been paused. On a digital dollar, I think digital currency initiatives are very interesting, right? Now that's not really Web three; that's a digital dollar, the but CBDCs, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah.
0: So then you know the naysayers and you know the liberals who say, "Oh, CBDCs are meant to be," you know, "there's the establishment coming after us," and yes. you know, yes. it, it kills the, the the free spirit of the, of the of the crypto uh, universe and blah blah blah, yeah. blah, right? I think that's fair, and that's some. By the way, that's yeah. one of the concerns
1: with India, where in the sense that now that you have so much. Uh, uh, transparency and everything attached to this Aadhaar number that I was involved in. Right. What happens to your privacy and what happens to other stuff? So yeah, I mean, it's that's my point. I think this whole thing's going to shake out. I think that what you what you're seeing in the US is a little bit of concern that the pendulum's gone too far. Mm-hmm. But I don't think these people are actually
0: fundamentally opposed to Web three. I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. So there should be some elegant solution. Yeah. So in preparing the people for you know what is definitely going to be a really strange and 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 weird world, right? Um, and AI is just the most scary thing possible, Um, education must evolve. The way we teach our children must evolve. I mean, as a parent myself, I'm a bit skeptical of the three-year degree program. You're stuck in some institution in some sense. You're paying big, big money, especially at the top university. And, you know, the, the syllabus, the curriculum tends to be a little bit static, in fact, more than a little static. And then they come out and they may not get a job immediately. Generally. So that whole, that whole edifice seems to be crumbling. So you wrote about this, right? And you called it GRASP, right? So talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, I think our education
1: enterprises are behind the times, and they have been for about a thousand years. <laughs> uh, so uh, the point I'm trying to make is that we are not, the way we teach is not compatible with the way the brain works. Just as Not the way as
0: the, the at the speed the universe is moving. Well,
1: that's leaving aside the speed of the universe. It's just the way we, even, you know, 50 years ago we were teaching wrong. We were teaching incorrectly. You know, the uh, concept of a 90-minute lecture and somehow the, you know, the assumption that the professor has the pen and the student's brain is a sheet of paper and all you're doing is writing on it and declare, vic- dec- declaring victory. That's ridiculous, right? I mean, you and I are sitting in front of plants A plant wants sunlight when it wants sunlight. It wants water when it wants water. It wants potassium when it wants it. Nitrogen when it wants it. You can't give it a year's supply of water on day one and say, you're done. The human brain is similar. The human brain is actually a child or even an adult. We're forming a model of the world. And when I need, when I'm forming a model of the world, right, you need to give me information to plug the gaps when I need them. But the lecture model and the education model is quite the opposite. I'll give you a beer supply of water today because it's convenient for me, right? So that's got to change. And that problem is now laid bare in the era of AI and Web3 and all that when you have to learn on the fly. I mean, take AI, right? Uh, It's only, what, seven months old, the chat GPT, you know, eight months old, right? Now, where can you learn about AI? Where would you go? You're going to go back and get a master's? Really? YouTube. <laughs> YouTube. For you're cobbling people. together videos from YouTube. That's and right. you're talking to a few. Is And yet, educational institutions have not stepped up. Yeah. I mean, how tragic is that? Yeah. Right? So we need an educational system that keeps up with it. And I call it the quaternary education system, right? Not tertiary, quaternary. And we also need to meld learning with work. Because when you learn something, you apply it, you learn better. This is the science. So what you're talking about makes a lot of sense. And in fact... Uh, this has been practiced, actually. It's not that new. The Germans and the Austrians and the, you know, they have apprenticeship systems. You're going to high school, you're apprenticing. You go to college, you apprentice. And that keeps both your learning uh, relevant, but also keeps the professors uh, on their toes. So I think we need to
0: absolutely evolve to something like that. So basically, if you are driven in that way, there's a lot, there's a high element of agency involved now, because if you were a driven and ambitious individual, you could conceivably learn a lot of this stuff on your own, especially with the free courses you know offered by big, some of the big corporations. You need not go to a tertiary institution anymore. You need not pay that kind of money anymore, right? So what value does... So, of course, MIT is a different animal, right? Because it's, num- it's numero uno, right? And LSE and, and Imperial and all these other guys. But if you, if you were to not qualify for one of the top 10 global best of the best universities, and the rest of the world is, you know, the rest of them are just commoditized, right? Then why bother? Well, I will still defend higher ed. A little bit, not too much. Okay. So it turns out that uh, the prefrontal
1: cortex, which is the you know the front of your forehead... The common uh, sense thing. It's actually not... Co- it's the CEO of your brain. Yeah. All right? Yeah. And uh, it's the only human beings have it. I mean, even the great apes have only a very primitive version of it. Um, it grows in between ages 17 or 18 and 20, 22, 23. I think mine never grew in. But anyway, it's, the, it's literally the CEO of your brain, right? This is why we don't let uh, kids drive until they're a little bit older. We don't let them drink alcohol ever sometimes.
0: and But yet, we send them to war at a younger I mean, age. So I think Kimi Raikkonen won the F1 world we'll title at 17 or something, <laughs> right? So, but he's a out, liar, right? Obviously. Yeah, but he's also,
1: that's that's an instinct. It's he's not, right? right? Because you right. have a team coaching. They have someone with a, a grown uh, uh, free, prefrontal cortex, PFC, guiding them from the pits, right? That's instinct, and he was unique. Uh, he is unique. The challenge is you do want that incubation period where young people are learning certain disciplines, right? The discipline of, uh, for example, thinking mathematically, thinking about the humanities. I'm a big believer in the humanities, thinking philosophically. So I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. The problem is we've taken that too far. I would say, I mean, I, would, I did not even think, I mean, I, this was after I wrote Grasp, of telling my kid, don't go to college. I didn't even think about it because I felt it was good. The problem is we don't do it right. We are doing too much of the philosophizing and too little of the practical stuff that young people need, both to enjoy the learning, but also to make it practical when they enter the workforce. And this is a balance that needs to be struck.
0: So from the perspective of duration, cost, appeal, and applicability, how does the quaternary education system look like in your idea? Yeah,
1: so what I just described is a tertiary education system. Okay. This is until you're age 22 or so, all right? So this is when your prefrontal cortex is growing in and you want to sort of guide it. So, so you still do your undergrad? You still do your undergrad, but in a different way. What you do is you do a, a year, you do an internship for a, six months, you come back, you do a year, you do some online courses, and it's all baked into the d- degree. I actually wrote a document about it, uh, which if you want, I'll put a, give you a reference to. A uh, few of us wrote it, and we wrote some articles about it. It's gotten some um, some um, um, press recently. Now, the quaternary education system is what you need for the rest of your life. It's the gym you go to to stay uh, fit knowledge-wise. You go three times a week, right? We don't have that. There is no such thing as a quaternary education system, except watching YouTube videos yeah. and then getting uh, hij- uh, you know, distracted by some video of someone doing something foolish, Mm -hmm. right? We don't have, and we have, this is what we're creating. We created it at MIT. Um, At MIT, we called it Agile Continuous Education, ACE. And this is something at ASB we're considering, which is how do you create this quaternary, uh, lifelong uh, Agile Continuous Education system? And this does not
0: exist. So what is the difference between what you're offering or what you plan to offer versus what people can do in their spare time? whether it's learning to edit videos or whether it's learning to take photographs or whether it's um learning to code, you know? Yeah, hopefully what, what not. What is the difference?
1: Yeah, hopefully not such a huge difference, but there is a difference. Yeah. See, when you learn photography in your spare time, you love it, right? It's passion, It's a passion. You, you're you waiting for the moment you do it. That's right. So what we want to do is, the problem is you may not learn it right. You may, you cobble together some videos and you don't understand, you know, how uh, a... a uh, an SLR is different from a camera that you know doesn't have you know a, a similar lens and a similar uh, shutter system. So if you do it right, you can combine the two. So what you do is, listen, let me tell you how AI works, right? Let me tell you what large language models are. Let me tell you what embedding spaces are. Let me tell you what a neural network is. But I'll do it in a way that it is both fun and you get your fundamentals right, right? So my little joke is you want to put the fun in the fundamentals mm. and then go do the AI, go write a program, you know, write a little game with your kid where the AI is, you know, mimicking mom or mimicking dad, right? So you have to, that's the idea. The idea is we want to keep the passion of the the weekend ritual, but um, reinforce it
0: with the discipline of getting it right and then w- would the killer thing then be the mit stamp on that piece of paper which you then get at the culmination of that course which would then be the you know the the, the icing on the cake because because that's what it means right i mean otherwise why why would people go to mit versus you know, Sheffield University, for example. Sheffield University is a great school, by the so way. It's all right, but it's great school. It ain't MIT, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, but I think we need to move past labels now, Okay. Now, so when can I did, we, should we? Be we should. We should. Yeah, we should. I'll explain why in a second. I absolutely think we should. Uh, when we when I did it out of MIT, we gave MIT labels. If we do it out of ASB. It'll be ASB labels. If it's Sheffield, it'll be Sheffield labels. The reason we need to move past labels, though, is this: um, it's like buying something on eBay. What do you look at? You look at the number of stars the seller had. You look at their reviews. We're moving into a gig economy. Your first job, your label matters. Your fourth job, it's the number of stars you got that matter. And if it's the number of stars you got, it's how well you did the damn job. That's a technical term. How well you did the damn job, right? And it doesn't matter whether you have a certificate. What matters is, did you learn it well? That's much more authentic, right? So we have to focus
0: on learning for this new world. And the labels matter less and less. Well, let's see, because people are superficial creatures, aren't they? Especially Asian parents. They're like, go to Oxford, go to Cambridge. Otherwise, don't go to university, right? You know, because I don't blame them. Parents
1: love their kids yeah. and they know the power of the proxy. Mm. But things are changing very fast. If you told me three, five years ago, seven years ago, uh, when my kid wanted to visit, that I'd just ask her to ride home in a car that, driven by a dude I'd never met, I'd scoff at you. I'd scoff. Right? Yeah. I'd be like, what the hell? Mm. Right? But I did that when I was there recently because it's Uber, and I know that the driver's being tracked, and I know there's a seat. Right? Things change, man. Let's get ready for change. And by the way, the gig economy is creeping up
0: on us. You know this, Right. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's what people like you—you've all know how Noah Harari talks about all the time that the future is all about individual, um, uh, individual experts offering their services for for you know for for hire on the internet. They're not working for corporations anymore, and they could be work, living in Bali or living in Costa Rica. They work seventeen very very productive hours a month, and that's enough to pay for the rest of the month, and they can go skiing or surfing or whatever it is. And that's upon us. I mean, it's not already coming, it's upon us. It a lot is of people upon us. Yeah, and I think it's fantastic. It is. I mean, if it, why do corporations even exist? And I don't mean
1: that in some sort of radical way. They exist. Actually, there, there's a Nobel laureate, Ronald Coase. He wrote two papers, one in 1937 and one in 1960. I think he got the Nobel Prize in 1992. And he explained why corporations exist. Why do we make these big things? We make these big corporations because there's pool resources, right? You need a typist pool. And if you have a typist pool, it's better that you all work together and share the typist pool. There's a factory, right? But today, the reasons for the existence of corporations are going away. I use Google Docs. I yeah. don't need a typist pool. You've got SaaS, right? Yeah, I've got SaaS. I've got access to 3D printers, you know? I don't need all those aggregating forces. They're going away. That's called the transaction cost. The transaction cost is going away. So what that means is the idea of these big corporations sort of goes down, right? And that's why this is happening. I mean, in some respects, Ronald Coase predicted both the formation of companies, but without realizing it, predicted the demise of companies. And this is the future. And if you're in this future of the gig, really, by your fourth job, it does not matter if you graduate from MIT, Sheffield, or some um, unknown university. What matters is how good are you at your job? Your ability.
0: Sanjeev, do you think you're a success? Nah, um,
1: in some respects, yes. But uh, uh, there's a lot more I
0: want to do, man. Okay. How would you define success?
1: That's, that was why I struggled. I don't know what it is. Yeah. Right? I will say I'm happy.
0: What is happiness?
1: I'm satisfied. I'm not sure what it means. I can tell you when I see it. I can tell you when I feel it. I feel, I feel I can be myself. I can be myself. And I don't, I'm not, I don't need anything. I'm not wanting anything.
0: I know? think as a collective, you and I have been around the block a couple of times, right? And at various points in our life, especially in mine, I think, I think to myself, have I f- lived up to my full potential? Have I, you know, am I classified as a success in the eyes of my peers and my parents and my, you know, my co- colleagues? And then I ask myself, what is success? What is success in the 21st century? Because if we were to not have a goal in mind, especially for our children, then how can they plan and navigate their futures? Because they don't know what to aim for. Do you know know what I mean? Absolutely. Because I think success is a proxy for something. Success is a proxy for happiness, but it may not be a good proxy.
1: Mm.
0: Happiness is the ultimate goal. So then it's a very personal um, caricature of what one deems to be successful and happy. Yes, yeah. right. I think I think you want to be happy. I think you want to be
1: satisfied. I think you want to go home and sleep well. I think and you know even successful people have a lot of pain. Even happy people something sad happens. You know, a, a loved one passes away. You fall sick. You see something that makes you upset. And I think equanimity and you know the ability to go home and usually generally barring these other things um you know have a um uh, a pleasant you know uh last few minutes before you sleep and you feel good about yourself, that's about all I want.
0: So, Sanjay, rules for life, man. <laughs> what are your rules for life?
1: You know, um, I have uh, a few. One is authenticity, right? That's a very fundamental thing. You know, uh, you should be yourself. Um, the second is, uh, I believe a lot in curiosity, right? Which is, if you want to uh, be happy, you've got to nourish the brain more than the rest of your body and curiosity is very important. Authenticity means you're yourself. Curiosity is your brain is hungry and you're feeding it, and it prevents other sort of...
0: Atrophy, for example. Atrophy, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh,
1: The third rule for life for me is uh, recognizing when something is inevitable and just accepting it. I don't mean not fighting things that you can fight for, right? But I'll give you an example. Why is Elon Musk both infuriating, but also to some extent inspiring, electric cars were inevitable. And there were a lot of people who said, oh, you can't make electric cars because, you know, you need a ton of battery in every car. And he said, why not? So it's that inevitability, you know? It's the Sherlock Holmes quote, right? When you've eliminated the obvious, what remains, I think he said something along the lines of, no matter how unlikely, has got to be the truth. And we trap ourselves in a bubble of what I call evitability, right? Which is, we think we can avoid it, but you know what's going to happen. You know, climate change is inevitable. Let's deal with it. It's going to happen. And, but yet people have, you know, they've stuck their heads in the sand and they're hoping climate change doesn't happen.
0: So that's item number three, right? That's I. Okay, three. so let's dwell on that for a little while because yeah. I talked about this with Idris Jala, right? Mm-hmm. And I asked him about the um, his belief in karma, right? And his belief, not not karma, sorry, the, the, the idea that, or premeditation about how your life is kind of like mapped out for you by whatever that power being it is, right? And he, and I said to him, I said, my, my ratio is 30%, um, you know, inevit- inevitability, pre- premeditation, 70% input. And I was quite shocked that he said, for him, the ratio was the opposite. For him, 30% input for personal, 70% premeditation.
1: I don't agree. I agree with you. Yeah. In fact, I would say 90 yeah. 10 yeah, all 19-7. right. I mean, I'm a big believer in agency. You use the word agency right. earlier for learning. That's I'm right. a big believer in agency. Number one, and number two, when I'm talking about inevitable, I'm talking about logical inevitability, not fate. Right? I don't accept fate. It may be true, but I choose not to accept it. Okay. All right. I I I fundamentally believe that human beings have agency, um, and individual agency, uh, but logical inevitability you got to accept. Logical inevitability is the climate's, you know,
0: temperature's going up, CO2 content's going up, and so we've got to find a way out of it. Well, taxes you need to pay politicians, Will, Philando, and that kind of thing, right? <laughs> Item number four. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then the the fourth action, the fourth sort of thing for me is uh,
1: action, right? You got to act. Don't be a la. Yeah, yeah, you know, you just got to take the bull by the horns. Uh, and again, it doesn't mean that uh, you want to do something stupid, you know, reckless, But in your own sphere, if you can act, you got to act. You have a duty, you know. Um, You have your principles and you got to act on them. Um, If you see something that's unfair, in your little way, do something
0: about it. Yeah. You know, I believe in action. So those are my four. Okay, man. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. I've been given the waving hand. So it looks as if we got to, you know, um, wait till the next one. But it was a huge pleasure, Sanjay. It's very enlightening, hugely illuminating. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Such a pleasure, Chuan. Thank to you. Great
1: you, man.